0: The Victorious Life Part Two by b b Warfield This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. It is a fatally inadequate conception of salvation which so focuses attention on deliverance from the penalty of sin and from continued acts of sin as to permit to fall out of sight, deliverance from sin itself, that corruption of heart which makes us sinners. Laying one-sided stress on the deliverance from acts of sin are confined by definition to deliberate transgressions of known law, is too poverty-stricken a conception of salvation to satisfy any Christian heart. Christians know that their Lord has come into the world to save them from sin in all its aspects, its penalty, its corruption, and its power. They trust him for this complete salvation, and they know that they receive it from him in its fullness. Mr. Trumbull and his associates have no doubt been betrayed into neglect or denial of our deliverance from the central thing, the corruption of man's heart, by a certain prudence. They are set upon the assertion of the possibility and duty for Christians of a life free from sinning. Grant them that, and they are willing to allow that their unsinning Christians remain sinners at heart they do not appear to see that thus they yield the whole case. An astonishing misapprehension of the relation of action to motive underlies their point of view, and a still more astonishing misapprehension of the method of sanctification which is found on this relation. To keep a sinner, remaining a sinner, free from actually sinning, would be but a poor salvation, and in point of fact, that is not the way the Holy Spirit operates in saving the soul. He does not Take possession of our will and work it. Thus, despite our sinful hearts producing a series of good acts as our life manifestation and thereby falsifying our real nature in its manifestation, he cures our sinning precisely by curing our sinful nature. He makes the tree good that the fruit may be good. It is, in other words, precisely by eradicating our sinfulness, the corruption of our hearts, that he delivers us from sinning. The very element in salvation which Mr Trumbull neglects is therefore, in point of fact, the radical element of the saving process, and the indispensable precondition of that element in salvation, which he elects to emphasize to its neglect. We cannot be saved from sinning except as we are saved from sin, and the degree in which we are saved from sinning is the index of the degree in which we have been saved from sin. Here too, as in every other sphere of activity, the operari follows and must follow the essay, a thing must be before it can act, and it can act only as it is. To imagine that we can be saved from the power of sin without the eradication of the corruption in which the power of sin has its seat is to imagine that an evil tree can be compelled to bring forth good fruit, or that it would be worthwhile to compel it to do so, which is the precise thing that our Lord denies. What Mr. Trumbull in Point of Fact teaches is exactly what Hannah Whittle-Smith ridicules in a vivid figure which she uses in a less felicitous connection, that what Christ does is just to tie good fruit to the branches of a bad tree and cry, Behold, how great is my salvation! It is astonishing that nevertheless even Dr. W. H. Griffith Thomas falls in to some extent with this representation. Dr. Thomas does not forget, indeed, that we are to be delivered from the corruption of sin ultimately. When he wishes to bring into view the whole deliverance which we have in Christ, he enumerates the elements of it thus. Deliverance from the guilt of sin, deliverance from the penalty of sin, deliverance from the bondage of sin, and deliverance hereafter from the very presence of sin. The insertion of the word hereafter into the last clause tells the story. We must wait for the hereafter to be delivered from the presence of sin, that is to say, from the corruption of our hearts. But meanwhile, we may very well live as if sin were not present. Its presence in us need not in any way affect our life manifestation. Dr. Thomas enters the formal discussion of the matter, apparently as a mediator in the old question, suppression or eradication, on this side or the other, of which perfectionists have been accustomed to array themselves as they face the problem of sin that dwells in us. He comes forward with a new formula by which, supposedly, he hopes that he may conciliate the parties to the dispute. Suppression, he declares, says too little, eradication says too much. Let us say, counteraction, he suggests, and then we shall have the right word. Does counteraction, however, come between eradication and suppression, saying less than the one and more than the other? Does it not say less than either? Whether the sinful principle in us be eradicated or suppressed, it is put out of action. If it be merely counteracted, it not only remains, but remains active and enters as a co-factor into all effects. The illustration which Dr. Thomas himself uses to make his meaning clear is what he speaks of as the counteraction of gravitation by volition. In the same way he says the lower law of sin and death is forever counteracted by the presence of the Holy Ghost in our hearts. Of course volition does not directly counteract gravitation. We cannot by a mere volition rise at will upwards from the earth. What Volition is able to do is to set another physical force in operation in the direction opposed to the pull or push of gravitation, and if this new physical force pulls or pushes more powerfully in a direction opposite to that in which gravitation pulls or pushes, why, the effect will be in the direction of the action of the new force and will be determined by the amount of its superiority to the force of gravity. We throw a ball into the air. We have not suppressed gravity, it pulls the ball all the time. We only counteract its effects in the exact measure in which the force we apply exceeds the pull of gravity. If Dr. Thomas intends this illustration to be applied fully, it appears to imply that the principle of sin operates in all our acts with full power and therefore conditions all our acts. Only the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is stronger than indwelling sin, and therefore the effect produced is determined by him. We do not sin, not because the principle of sin in us is suppressed or eradicated, but because it is counteracted. If this be Dr. Thomas's meaning, one would think that he ought to declare not, as he does declare, that Christians need not sin, but that they cannot sin, not even to the least tiny degree. If the Holy Spirit, who is the infinite God, dwells in them for the express purpose of counteracting the principle of sin in them, and if he operates invariably in every action of the Christian, it would seem to be clearly impossible that the principle of sin should ever be traceable in the effect at all. The ball that we throw into the air will rise only a certain distance, and ever more and more slowly until its initial impulse, being overcome by the deadly pull of gravity, it turns and falls back to earth. If, however, it was propelled by an infinite force, the pull of gravity, though always present, could have no determining effect on its movement. On this theory of counteraction, Dr. Thomas should teach, therefore, not that Christians need not sin, but that they cannot sin, as indeed the passages in 1 John, on which he immediately depends in his exposition of his view, would also compel him, on his system of interpretation, to teach. From the point of view of scripture, however, this theory of counteraction is quite inadequate. It renders it impossible for the Christian to sin, and the scriptures do not teach that, but it leaves the principle of sin in him unaltered and in full activity, and most emphatically, the scriptures do not teach that such is the condition of the Christian in this world. It surely would be better to be freed from the principle of sin in us than merely from its effects on our actions. And this is, in effect, what the scriptures provide for. What they teach, indeed, is just eradication. They propose to free us from sinning by freeing us from the principle of sin. Of course, they teach that the spirit dwells within us, but they teach that the spirit dwells within us in order to affect us, not merely our acts, in order to eradicate our sinfulness and not merely to counteract its effects. The scripture's way of cleansing the stream is to cleanse the fountain. They are not content to attack the stream of our activities. They attack directly the heart out of which the issues of life flow. But they give us no promise that the fountain will be completely cleansed all at once, and therefore no promise that the stream will flow perfectly purely from the beginning. We are not denying that the Spirit leads us in all our acts as well as purifies our hearts, but we are denying that his whole work in us, or his whole immediate work in us, or his fundamental work in us, terminates on our activities, and can be summed up in the word counteraction. Counteraction there is, and suppression there is, but most fundamentally of all, there is eradication. And all these work one and the self-same Spirit. We are not forgetful that Dr. Thomas teaches an ultimate eradication, and we would not be unwilling to read his recognition of it with a benevolent eye, understand him as teaching, not that the eradication which is going on now is not completed until hereafter. That would be scriptural. But we fear Dr. Thomas will not permit us so to read him, and if we mistake not, this difference in point of view between him and the scriptures is in part the source of his misconception and misprision of the seventh chapter of Romans. That chapter depicts for us the process of the eradication of the old nature. Dr. Thomas reads it statically and sees in it merely a deadly warfare between the two natures, which, he affirms, does not represent the normal Christian life of sanctification. He even permits himself to say, there is no divine grace in that chapter, only man's nature struggling to be good and holy by law. What is really in the chapter is divine grace warring against, and not merely counteracting, but eradicating the nature evil of sin. To Paul, the presence of the conflict there depicted is the guarantee of victory. The three things which we must insist on, if we would share Paul's view, are first, that to grace always belongs the initiative, it is grace that works the change. Secondly, that to grace always belongs the victory, grace is infinite power and thirdly, that the working of grace is by process and therefore reveals itself at any given point of observation as conflict. Insofar as Dr. Thomas's representation obscures any one of these things, it falls away from the teaching of the New Testament. Grace assuredly means a new life, a divine life, which lifts us above the natural and is nothing else than the life of Christ himself in his people. It is, in substance, as sanctifying grace, the occupation of our hearts by the Holy Spirit and the undertaking by him not only of their renewal but of their control. It is they alone who are led by the Spirit who are sons of God. But the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is not confined to the direction of our activities. Dr. Thomas says truly that grace does not merely educate the natural heart, but he errs when he says that grace does not improve the old nature but overcomes it. He errs when he teaches only that It promises hereafter to extirpate it, but meanwhile only counteracts its tendencies. It is progressively extirpating it now, and that is the fundamental fact in supernatural sanctification. The sanctifying action of the Spirit terminates on us, not merely on our activities. Under it, not only our actions, but we are made holy. Only this takes time, and therefore at no point short of its completion are either our acts or we perfect. If we wish to observe to what lengths the notion may be carried, that the old man in us is unaffected by the intruding spirit, we have only to turn to Mr. Robert C. McQuilkin's somewhat incoherent tract on God's way of victory over sin. This tract has for its professed object the inculcation of what it expresses in its subordinate title in the words, if it isn't easy, it isn't good. That is to say, its primary purpose is to show that it is easy, not hard, to be good, and that it is therefore wrong to say that it's awful hard to be good. It is easy to be good because it is not we who have to be good, but the Holy Spirit is ready to be good for us, and all we have to do is just let him. We have called the tract incoherent because, with this as its primary concern, it yet tells us, as it draws near to its close, that the Spirit-led life is not an easy life, that, on the contrary, it is the hardest life in all this sin-cursed world. Are we not to apply to the spirit-led life then the maxim, if it isn't easy, it isn't good? The specialty of this tract, however, and the reason we advert to it here, is the crudity with which, after a fashion more familiar to us among the brethren, it divides the Christian man into two ineradicably antagonistic natures, the fallen nature and the new nature. It is not only hard for a fallen man to be good, we are told, but impossible. This is not altered by his new birth. The new birth does not change his fallen nature. It only puts into him by its side a new nature. Henceforth he has two natures in him, one of which can only sin, the other of which cannot sin. The man himself, whatever the man himself apart from his two natures may be, he is apparently conceived as bare will, sits up between these two natures and turns over the lever as he lists to give the one nature or the other momentary control. The two natures, we are told, have absolutely no effect on one another. The carnal nature in the Christian is utterly evil and is never mixed with any good. The new nature has no effect whatever upon the carnal nature. It is utterly distinct from it and cannot mingle with it any more than God can have sin in his nature. It does not change the character of the evil that the carnal nature is capable of. Apparently, the carnal nature of man is never in any way changed or modified. From all that appears, it remains in him forever and forever just badness and unalloyed badness. At least nothing is said to relieve that situation. Salvation does not consist in its eradication. It consists in the dominance in the life of the new nature existing by its side. This new nature is identified now with the indwelling spirit, It is sometimes spoken of, no doubt, as a the God-begotten nature, but it is more frequently and properly treated as just the indwelling Spirit himself, and it is because it is the indwelling Spirit himself that it cannot sin. It is impossible for the Spirit of God to be anything but good and well-pleasing to God. The sinless and invincible Spirit of God has taken up his dwelling in us, we read further, and has made it possible for us to permit him to win the victories over the temptations that assail. It is disappointing to learn from this statement that when the invincible spirit of God takes up his dwelling in us, all that he does is to make it possible for us to permit him, an odd clause that, to win victories for us. He is not in full control of us, it seems. It would indeed be truer to say that he is only at our disposal. Everything is, after all, in our own control. A Christian possessed of the indwelling spirit of God, we read with sad eyes, may choose to walk after the flesh. That is no doubt because he is possessed of, rather than by, the Spirit of God. At any rate, it belongs ineradicably to the Christian to turn on the old carnal nature, or the new spiritual nature, as he may choose, and let it act for him. Who this Christian is, who possesses this power, it is a little puzzling to make out. He cannot be the old carnal nature, for that old carnal nature cannot do anything good, and presumably, therefore, would never turn on the Spirit in control. He cannot be the new spiritual nature, for this new spiritual nature cannot do anything evil and this Christian may choose to walk after the flesh. Is he possibly some third nature? We hope not, because two absolutely antagonistic and non-communicating natures seem enough to be in one man. The only alternative seems, however, to be that he is no nature at all, just a non-entity, and then we do not see how he can turn on anything. Mr. McQuilkin is not wholly unaware of the difficulty to thought of the notion he is presenting. That a Christian should possess two natures, he writes, one wholly evil and incapable of doing good, the other wholly good and incapable of doing evil, is a mystery, and no words of man's wisdom can explain how these two natures exist in one personality. That surely is true. It has already incidentally become clear how Mr. Trumbull and his associates think of the victorious life, It is not lived by the Christian, but by Christ, in and through the Christian. Immediately upon our letting go and letting God, God in Christ takes charge of our lives and lives them for us. The conception is that of a true substitution of the Christ within us for ourselves, as the agent in what are apparently our own activities. It involves, therefore, a complete quietism on our part, and nothing is more insisted upon than that we must cease from all effort in the matter of good works. The sole condition of Christ's thus undertaking for us is that we should leave it absolutely to Him. A very fair, compressed statement of the whole theory is given in one or two pages in Victory in Christ. There we are told that there are two conditions of the life of victory. They are declared to be simple and described as surrender and faith. They are proper conditions, that is to say, they must precede the victorious life, Without them there can be no victorious life, but on their occurrence the victorious life follows in a strict consequence, immediately and in its completeness. Surrender is defined as the uttermost giving up of all that we have and all that we are to the mastery of Jesus. It is elsewhere called accepting Christ not only as our Saviour, that has been done in justifying faith, but also as our Lord. It is putting ourselves wholly at his disposal. It is said that Christ can do nothing for us until this is done. His taking charge of our life can only be by our permission. But as soon as we have made this complete and unconditional surrender, Christ instantly accepts the whole responsibility of living in us in his fullness. This is the Christ in us, living in us and living through us of other passages. What he accomplishes in us by thus living in us is expressed as working the miracle victory of the power of all known sin, of producing in us all the fruit of the Spirit. This statement appears to declare a negative and a positive effect. Negatively, he frees us from all known sin. Positively, he produces in us all the fruit of the Spirit. Thus, a true perfection of life is produced. How we open the way for him to do this is more exactly explained as by telling him that we know he is doing it. If this bears the appearance of a contradiction, for how can his undertaking to do it be conditioned on our recognition that he is already doing it, the victory is met by explaining that the basis of our knowledge that he is doing it is the bare promise. It is not introspection or experience. We know this not by any changed feeling nor by any evidence or any proof or any manifestation of any sort. We must rest on the bare word. Christ says he will do it if we let him. We therefore know that he is doing it when we let go and let God, and if we tell him so, he will undertake the doing of it then and there. A statement in which there still seems to reside a certain confusion between the present and future tenses. We may let that pass, however. What is certainly taught is that Christ wishes, of course, to take charge of our lives, but cannot do it until we let him. But when we absolutely trust him to do it, That is the step of faith that Christ instantly honours and blesses with the very fullness of his life. We must remember, of course, that everything must depend upon Christ and his work in the matter of victory. But this only after we have surrendered ourselves to him. That he does the work on which everything depends, itself depends, that is, absolutely on us. Thus, everything ultimately is in our hands. Christ is an absolutely indispensable instrument, an instrument without which the results could not be obtained. We must use him if we are to perfect our lives. But he is only an instrument which we use. He can do nothing of himself. It is only as we use him that he can work on or in us. The manner in which we must use him, however, is to submit ourselves entirely to him. He can do nothing unless we call him in to do it. But neither can he do anything when we call him in to do it, unless we put the case absolutely in his hands. He will undertake nothing unless he has it all, and the all must be taken absolutely. The condition of the victorious life is that we must do nothing, absolutely nothing, except submit ourselves to Christ. Any attempt to do anything further not only does not help on the work of our perfecting, it absolutely hinders it. Just remember this, says Mr. Trumbull in the tract on real and counterfeit victory. Any victory over the power of sin whatever in your life that you have got by working for it is counterfeit. Any victory that you have to get by trying for it is counterfeit. If you have to work for your victory, it is not the real thing. It is not the thing that God offers you. The notion is still further developed in the tract on is victory earned or a gift, What is affirmed here is that victory is an outright gift of God, by which is meant that we can do nothing whatever to realize it. We do do something to secure it, something so necessary that unless we do it, we cannot have it. Though Mr. Trumbull will not allow that even what we do to secure it, the surrendering ourselves to Christ, is an effort. It is just an act of will, he says. But certainly no efforts are in place in the realization of our victory over sin. We must not try not to sin. Our efforts, he explains, that is, our efforts not to commit sin, can not only never play any part in our victory over the power of sin, but they can and do effectively prevent such victory. He is speaking, let us bear in mind, to men who have already received deliverance from the penalty of sin. They are Christian men. Now, he says, they must not try not to commit sin. All they must, all they can do, is by an act of will, which is no effort, to accept absolute freedom from the power of sin, that is, in his definition, from committing sins, as a free gift. If they try at all not to commit sins, that is the same as to attempt to cooperate with Christ in freeing them from the power of sin. It involves, therefore, a demand that Christ should recognize that they have had some part to play in freeing themselves from the power of sin, and Christ can never recognize that. And accordingly, if we try to refrain from sinning, the only result is that we prevent Christ from saving us. In that case, Christ cannot save us from the power of sin. We are then to use our will to accept the gift of victory, which we remember is no effort. But we are not to make an effort, any effort at all, to win the victory. We don't need to agonize about it. We don't need to work for it. The more we work and the more we agonize, the more we prevent or postpone what he wants to give us now. This is, of course, express quietism. Mr. Trumbull is not content to teach that we cannot cease from sinning in the power of our own will, even of our renewed will alone, but must be dependent for our every victory over sin upon the indwelling Spirit and His gracious operations. He goes on to teach that, therefore, we must make no effort to cease from sinning, but leave it wholly to God the Spirit Himself to deliver us from sinning. He is not content to trust our conquest of sin to God, in whose might alone we can conquer in this warfare. He insists that, therefore, we must refuse to fight the good fight of faith, and decline to have any part in the working out of our own salvation. This, we say, is quietism, and because it is quietism, it may easily run over into antinomianism. All history teaches us how dreadfully easy it is to persuade ourselves that, if we have received as a sheer gift from Christ absolute freedom from sinning, and need not concern ourselves farther about it, then, of course, the things we do, whatever they are, cannot be sins. Mr. Trumbull, of course, like all of his coterie, has already taken this step so far as to deny that anything he does can have the guilt of sin unless he knows it to be sin. Only recognized sins are sins to him. All experience teaches us that it is terribly easy not to recognize sins when we see them, not to know sins to which we chance to be prone to be sins. Here, too, constant vigilance is the price of safety. And therefore we find so good a perfectionist as W.B. Pope rebuking the too prevalent separation between the sanctification of Christian privilege as a free gift and the ethical means appointed for its attainment, and carefully explaining the two aspects in which sanctification must be looked at and emphasizing effort as entering into its very essence. On the one hand, he says truly, it is a state of rest filled with the Spirit. The Christian can say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. On the other, it is a state in which the soul is safe only in the highest exercise of the severest works. To its safety, its sedulity is required. How far this quietistic perfectionism may be pressed may be observed from the tract May Christians Lose Sinful Desires. What is contended for in this tract is not merely instantaneous and complete deliverance from the power of sin, in the sense of from the commission of sin, but Effortless freedom from sinful impulse. We not only do not sin, and do not sin without any effort on our part not to sin, having victory by freedom rather than victory by fight, we do not even have any impulse to sin. We not only are not mastered by sinful passions, we do not even feel any desire to yield to them. Their very appeal to us can be broken and broken completely. Effortless freedom from all sinful impulses, This is the type of perfectionism that is taught, and this is a distinctly quietistic type of perfectionism. What we are to do, and what we can do, is to enter upon the very life of God, to be as He is even in this world, 1 John 4, 17. Not to struggle or fight against temptation, but simply let Christ dispose of it, while we stand by like onlookers. It seems that we are still to be tempted, even though we are to be as God is in this world. This much is conceded to our humanity, though it is conceded arbitrarily. We are assured that we shall be tempted, and elsewhere we are told that our temptations ever increase in violence. But we are to be as God is, in having as our habitual experience his own freedom from the desire to sin under these temptations. The simple fact is, we are told, that whenever a life that trusts Christ as Saviour is completely surrendered to Christ as Master, Christ is ready then to take complete control of that life, and at once to fill it with Himself. When we surrender and trust completely, we die to self, and Christ can and does literally replace ourself with Himself. Thus it is no longer we that live, but Christ liveth in us, in His person, literally fills our whole being with Himself in actual personal presence. And he does this not as a figure of speech, but just as literally as that we fill our clothes with ourselves. If this be the state of the case, why, of course, we cannot sin, or feel any impulse to sin. Christ has supplanted us as the actor in all our actions. There is indeed no we left, our place has been taken by Christ, and Christ does not have to struggle against any appeal that sin makes to him. Any temptation that may assault us is of course defeated by Christ before it has time to draw us into a fight, if there is any us left to be drawn into a fight. What is our astonishment then to learn that it is nevertheless in our power, the power of the us which has been superseded by Christ as the agent in all our acts, to defeat Christ's purpose for us here. The only thing that can prevent him, we read, prevent Him from saving us from sinning and from doing it without our power against sin at all, is either our distrust of His power or our withdrawal of our complete surrender. When we surrender, Christ does literally replace ourself with Himself, and yet we can still distrust His power, withdraw our complete surrender. We seem forced by the conclusion that it is Christ, who is now the only agent, that distrusts His own power and withdraws our complete surrender, and we should not have thought that possible. But then we must remember that Mr. Trumbull has something always up his sleeve, which is, in his view, more powerful than Christ, and which not even Christ can either suppress or supplant. Something which, even though we have died to self, and it is no longer we that live, but Christ alone lives in us, yet can assert itself at any moment it chooses, and cast Christ from the throne and assume it itself, the human will. We can only say that for ourselves... We have not so learnt either Christ or the human will. There is another phrase which Mr. Trumbull uses in connection with the destruction of sinful desire in us that surprises us almost as much as this one, though from another point of view. The victorious life, he tells us, is the life of overcoming sin by the miraculous fact that the desire for sin is taken from you. You do not wish to do anything that you know to be sin. This is indeed a miraculous fact, with the limitation that is put on it, For with this limitation, it seems psychologically inexplicable. We can understand what is meant when it is said that the impulse to sinful acts is eradicated, but scarcely when what is said is that the impulse to acts known to be sinful is eradicated. What has our knowledge of the moral character of the acts to do with a native impulse pushing towards them? Here is anger, for instance. Mr. Trumbull is rather fond of using it as an illustration. We can understand what is meant when it is said that all impulse to anger is removed. And we can understand that as soon as we come to realize how wrong anger is, we should strive against the impulse to it. But how can the discovery that anger is wrong all at once remove all native tendency to angry abolition? This would be equivalent to saying that it is not the impulse to anger that is removed, but all tendency to abstract lawlessness. And that seems something different. The appearance is created that on this teaching the whole of the moral reaction is reduced to the one category of loyalty to law, and that seems scarcely tenable. Clearly the eradication of a constitutional propension pushing towards a specific action cannot be directly dependent on obtaining knowledge of the moral character of that action. The eradication of all impulses to sinful acts is at least intelligible. The conditioning of their eradication on our knowledge of the sinfulness of these acts seems scarcely so. But this, by the way. End of The Victorious Life, Part 2, by B.B. Warfield.